You know, we're in the, the middle of this great series in the book of Proverbs. And, uh, you know, for the first kind of half of that series, we looked each week at, um, you know, kind of a proverb. There are these great short, pithy statements. And we'd look at what each of those proverbs was teaching about, you know, an, an aspect of God's character. And now kind of through the second, you know, half that we're going through, we're looking at aspects of, of what a wise person is and how that relates to, how that affects their faith. You know, Proverbs is great. It gives us a contrast in so many of these statements. We have the wise person and the fool, or, or the wise person and the mocker. And so, you know, we, we kind of get these contrasts that help us to, to get, I think, a picture of what a life of authentic faith looks like. And so that brings us here this morning to Proverbs t- chapter 12, verse 1. And as we go through this morning, I think the, the I, sentence I'd love for you to have in your minds that I think really describes this, what the wise person is in this text is, a wise person is someone that has a plan for spiritual growth. And so here we are in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. And so again, we've got this contrast. We've got, you know, um, d- discipline juxtaposed with correction. And, and they really are kind of one and the same if you think about it. You know, um, all discipline is, is, uh, is correction positively or negatively. You know, your, your, your child does something wrong, you get frustrated at them, you discipline them. You know, you, you realize that you have this, you know, goal to, to get in better shape and you begin to discipline yourself by going to a gym, seeing a personal trainer, setting aside time in your every day to make sure you can get to the place that you want to be physically. So, so discipline and correction, they're really one and the same. And, and we've got these two people. We've got the person that hates correction and is, is labeled stupid, thereby implying that it is the wise person who loves discipline and loves knowledge. So go through this morning, I think we're going to see, see three things. First, that sanctification is hard work. Second, that avoiding correction ignores reality. And number three, that sanctification happens in community. You know, um, notice how knowledge is the end of discipline. The person who loves discipline loves knowledge. Discipline is not being lifted up as some kind of spiritual ideal that's good in and of itself. I mean, how many of us say, hey, I just want to be more disciplined because I'm bored. We, you know, I just feel like sweating because I think it would be fun. You know, we, we become disciplined as a means to an end. And so we sing the person that loves discipline, loves knowledge. They love discipline because they realize it is the means through which they will attain that which they seek. Discipline is the means through which they will achieve that knowledge that they're seeking. And the knowledge that the writer is talking about here is not some kind of esoteric, heady knowledge. It's not like saying, okay, the person who loves to be able to, you know, recite the metric tables loves discipline. Or the person who really just enjoys being able to have memorized the periodic table, they love discipline. No, the the knowledge that that Proverbs is always talking about it when it says knowledge, and the Old Testament generally, is 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 a spiritual knowledge. And again, it's not a knowledge of being able to say, oh, I can name the 12 tribes of Israel. Or I can name the 66 books in the Bible backwards, forwards, and side to side. 
It's a knowledge that has its focus in knowing the will of God and conforming to it. It's interesting that the same word that's used for knowledge here is used um, in the Old Testament for when a married couple has sex with each other. The most intimate experience of love and union and connectivity that a couple can experience is when they, you've seen it in some your translations, when they know each other. So the type of knowledge that we're referring to here this morning is a spiritual knowledge that has its focus in, in living in conformity to the will of God. Knowing God's will. Knowing God's character. Knowing His desire for your life and living in daily obedience to it. Yeah, you know, in, in the Ivory Towers we call it sanctification. Wayne Grudem writes in his um, book Systematic Theology, sanctification is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and more like Christ in our actual lives. It is a progressive work of both God and man to make us free from sin and more like Christ. Now, you know, um, th- th- there's a big difference between, between, and we do all the pause on this, what we call justification and sanctification. Because I think in, in practice as Christians, we run afoul of the two sometimes. Justification is the moment whereby someone realizes that they are a sinner in need of grace, unable to justify themselves before a righteous God. And is the moment where they put their faith and their trust in Christ and His work on the cross for the forgiveness of their sins. It's the moment where God says, you who were, who were guilty are now not guilty. You who once stood under my wrath now stand under my grace. You who were once stood under my condemnation am now at peace with the living God. It's a glorious moment when we are justified before the living God. But in practice, we haven't got it all together at, after that moment, do we? There's still, um, you know, entire life, perhaps depending on how old you lived, of trying to redeem and to be made more in God's image. There's still all these old attitudes, ideas, beliefs that need to be taken captive to Christ. All these desires of the flesh that need to be mortified. There's all this work we need to do to become more like Christ. It's a, so even though we're justified, we have a lot of work to do to become more and more like Christ and less like our sinful nature. Notice how the one is enti- justification is entirely the work of God. He initiates it. He does it. He makes it happen. But sanctification is synergistic. It's God and man cooperating together. It's God working on us by His Spirit to, to convict us of our sin and to, to conform us more to the image of our Son. But our actions play a part. We have something to say in, in how much it happens. How many of us, I wonder, however, confuse the two in our lives? You know, we know that, okay, God, you know, He, bang, He makes us justified. But how many of us live our lives as if we just expect God one day to zap us and make us more holy? We expect Him to just extend His hand one day and all of a sudden take us who perhaps, you know, have a weak faith and give us a greater faith. We expect Him to, you know, that one day we're just going to be sitting there in a service and it's like, bloop, the button will go and all of a sudden we're going to be more like one of those, you know, um, people in the Bible that perhaps we look up to. Or that all of a sudden one day we're just going to wake up and we're going to be like that, that brother or sister in the Lord whose faith is so much more mature than us. 
It's easy to do that. It's easy to confuse the two. And, and that's, that's what brings us here to, um, to this text because it says the person that wants to be intimate with Christ and live in conformity with His will loves discipline. We only incorporate discipline to our lives when we recognize that we're fighting an uphill battle. You know, I mean, if Bill Belichick thought that they could do the amazing thing of, you know, being undefeated, which they are going to do, would he really feel the need to have camps with three-a-day practices leaving everyone exhausted? Would he really feel the need to put every person on team on workout regimens and diets and have you know, practice after practice and watch films and do weight training and do the plays over and over and over again? If you really thought that you could get up one day and go take the SATs or the LSATs or the GMATs or the GREs or any other acronym, and get a perfect score. Why would there be any need to go through the discipline of, you know, taking a Kaplan class and using your note cards and studying again and again and again? We only incorporate discipline into our lives when we realize that the end for which we seek is unattainable in and of our natural selves. It is only when we realize that of ourselves we will not be able to achieve the end, we're not going to wake up one day and get there, that we are willing to incorporate discipline into our lives. We can be saved, we can be a son and daughter of the Lord Most High, but clearly if discipline for us is necessary, then we need help in order to become more and more like Christ. I mean, let's be honest, you, you, you know, you're saved, but you've still got this, this sinful nature tugging against you. You've still got these attitudes and these desires which the, the Word says are at war with the Spirit. You've still got the, the thing that teaches you that, you know, okay, when I put myself first, that generally feels good and gets me far in this life compared to the Word which says in all things we should put the needs of others first and ourselves last. That is not a thing that happens easily in our lives. It is not easy with which we can resist the pulls and the tugs of the culture and the media and, and the books we read and the TV shows we watch that have a worldview so contrary to the will of God. It is, and it is not easy that we can resist them and conform ourselves to the person of Christ rather than they. It is not easy that we can separate ourselves in a busy life with a hectic schedule from the, the friends and the family members, well-intentioned though they may be, who live apart from Christ and conform ourselves to Him in the face of life's difficulties and temptations. We face an uphill battle and it is worth noting because until we see how steep that hill is, we will never incorporate the discipline that is necessary to see us to the top where Christ would have us go. I invite you to open up with me to um, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Here um, in chapter 9, the Apostle Paul is writing, and like he does so frequently in the New Testament, he's giving us a, um, a physical analogy of the discipline that it takes to live a life on fire for God and in conformity with His will. And as if he's trying to get us to look at what we see here, you know, from a, in a physical sense and apply that same determination in a spiritual sense. So here we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 24. Do you not know that in the race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? 
run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating at the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Do you know that the minute that you accept Christ, it's like a track opens up before you. And and you've got this track and you've got a line to your left and to your right. And one false step over that line on that white chalk can separate you from the will of God and conform you to His will. One false undisciplined step can remove us from being right where He wants us to be. Are you living your life in the way that you can hear the cacophony of voices to your left and to your right, the, the cloud of witnesses that are cheering you on towards a life of faith and obedience? Are you, are you studying the people that are further along in the race ahead, those who are seemingly more mature in their faith? Are you measuring their gait, their steps, the way, the, the, the way they pace themselves? Are you measuring their walk and, and adjusting your pace to match their own that you may become more like they? Are you spending your t- your t- more time disciplining yourself for things that will not last forever or things that will? Are you disciplining your life around you, you know, things that are of this world or more on spiritual things that will endure? Are you running to get the prize That's what he's telling us here. All of us, I think, are motivated by by a prize. You know, um, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill recently did a study where um, they they wanted to see whether people who were labeled and categorized themselves as obese would lose more weight if they were given financial incentive. So so they got together 200 people, you know, from their area, and they brought them all together, and... um, they said, okay, well, we're going to give you know, the people that decide to you know, and are able to follow our plan and lose 1% you know, of their body mass index, we'll give them you know, X amount of dollars. And the people that lose 2% will give 2X. And the people that lose 3% will give 3X. And they all got the same plan. They all have the same opportunities. They all have the same you know, resources to use, the diet to follow, you know, the um, exercise to do, the, the personal trainers to talk with, the whole thing. Wouldn't you know that um, more, more people in that study than in other studies lost significantly more weight based on the research group? And why did they all say it? What was the cash? We were given that extra incentive. God gives us incentive in his word to strive to be disciplined to conf- and, and like Christ. And the prize is that we, you know, we're going we're gonna to share in the glory when we get to heaven. You know, when we start the Christian life, it is not like it's the end and now we're just kind of on hold until the Lord returns or calls us home. There's this track before us that we have to race upon. And the goal is to get as far down that road as we can to achieve the prize for which he calls us heavenward. Sanctification will require spiritual sweat, toil, sacrifice, intentionality, and great effort. It is not the type of thing that we are going to wake up one day and all of a sudden all of our sins will be completely mortified and put to death and we'll be, you know, this super holy person. It doesn't work that way. 
The Christian life is difficult. And I know that's like an aha, uh-huh, duh, Chris. Um, we didn't need to come here on a Sunday morning to hear you say that. But it is only by recognizing the difficulty of the road before us that we will do anything about it. It is only by recognizing the enormity of the challenge that we begin to discipline ourselves in order to run for and to Christ with everything that we have. Avoiding correction ignores reality. The person who hates correction is stupid, Proverbs tells us. You're going to be honest with you. I read that verse and it was on kind of BibleGateway.com when I first read it, and I thought the page loaded wrong. Because how often do we see the word stupid in Scripture? And so then I was like, well, maybe that's because I'm using you know, the, the New Living Translation. Okay, I'll, I'll go to the NIV. Stupid. All right, RSV. Stupid. NASB. Stupid. Hebrew. Stupid. Clearly God's trying to say something. You know, stupid is a, it's brash, it's brazen, it's blunt, it hits us in the face. You know, um, sometimes, you know, God is so eloquent with, you know, trying to address attitudes in our lives, and sometimes he just hits us between the eyes. And that is exactly what this text is trying to do. They're not misguided, they're not in error, they're dumb. And we have to ponder, why is that the case? Why is God so more severe about those who avoid correction than about other things? I think there's a few reasons. First, if discipline is the pathway by which we can attain greater unity with Christ and conformity to His will, if discipline is the means by which we can achieve the greatest end that we can ever possibly live for, is it not stupid to fail to take advantage of that? Um, we all need correction. You know, Proverbs 29 says, Who can say, I have made my heart clean? I am pure from sin. It's a rhetorical question with an implied negative. No one can. There is, not a sing- there is not a single person on planet earth that can say they are without sin. And there is not a single Christian on this side of heaven that can say they're done. They're complete. You know, um, it's actually it's worth referencing that um, this is the reason I could never see myself working in a church that descended from a very strong um, Wesleyan-Arminian background. Some of the, if you read some of the followers of John Wesley, they, they teach this idea that he had that um, in this life we can reach a place called sinless perfection or complete sanctification. Um, that there is this, this place in this life that some people can achieve, though rare, where they are completely free from struggling with sin and they are living in complete conformity with the will of God. You'll see people, particularly from the South, from a very strong holiness tradition, they'll say something like, I am sanctified. As if it's done complete in the past. Not I am being sanctified. Not I am praying to be more and more sanctified. Not I am becoming disciplined to be more sanctified each and every day. I am. You know, Ruth Bell Graham had a um, a great quote on her epitaph. It said, um, you know, on her tombstone, construction completed. I'm done. If even the very wise need correction, as Proverbs says, then what about a schlep like me? 
If even the very wise need correction, if even the Apostle Paul can cry out in Romans chapter 8, I do that which I don't want to do, then are we not all works in progress, struggling along the way to become more like Christ? In practice, however, I think that there are many people that, whether they realize it or not, display by their actions, rather than their words, that they hate correction. And that threatens us here in the church as well. You know, Corey and I, we had the privilege the other night um, to go out to dinner. And, you know, at this point in our lives, you know, we're, we've got one child, we've, we're on the countdown till the second one, Lord willing, appears. And, um, and the oxygen tank is running low, and the amount of free time we have together is dwindling. And so we got out for a night to go out to eat. And, and it, it was a memorable experience. Here we're out, and we're, we're eating dinner. And um, one, one booth removed from us behind us is a couple with two kids. I would say they were four and eight. And um, for the hour and a half we were at this restaurant, I think the four and the eight-year-old spent more time standing in the booth than sitting. So, I mean, imagine that, standing in the booth for 40 minutes, yelling, screaming, crying, shouting. It was magnificent. Um, at one point, Corey looks over at me and she says, I did not get a babysitter to go out to eat and hear someone else's kid cry. And, um, and we're joking about it. And the entire restaurant's looking at this poor couple. You know, that, that, you know, everyone's talking and pointing and staring. I mean, and at one point, the boy did the unthinkable. He stands up, well, he was standing in the booth. And on the wall, they have this, it's this glass, you know, glass facing with a Red Sox jersey right there. And I know this is like holy ground for a lot of you. And, and so he walks up to this thing and he just starts banging on the glass and going to rip it off the wall. And the best part about it is that here the parents sat, eyes fixed at a 45 degree angle down, eating their food and I suppose having a conversation through their food because their lips were moving but they weren't looking at each other. And eventually the waitress had to come over and say, your kids aren't allowed to do that. And then we heard the magic word for the first time, no. Um, how many of us live our lives that way? We, we know there's something going on. We know that there is that sin that we are still struggling with. We know that maybe we're not you know, giving God our best in terms of seeking Him through the Word, through Scripture, through fellowship with other believers but we just want to keep looking down because we think if we can just look down at that plate, maybe that stuff is not going on. If we can just avoid putting ourselves in the place to receive correction, maybe we don't really need it. And so, so we demonstrate that we hate correction by the way we order our lives rather than by what we say. I think if we're really honest with ourselves, we'll probably admit that well, we'll probably admit that we all fail to measure up to Christ's standard and that we don't want to know where we fail. Because if we know that, we have to change. And we live in New England. We don't like change. Change is a, um, is a foreign concept for us. Um, it's a lot easier just to keep things the way they are and act like it's not there. Correction, it, correction necessitates some of the most difficult spiritual disciplines for us to develop this side of heaven. We have to be humble, humbling ourselves before God and being willing to receive correction, be willing to ask the question, 
God, where am I succeeding and where am I failing? Where am I going up the hill and where have I stumbled down? We've got to be willing to be honest with ourselves and with other people in the same way when another believer says, how are you doing with your walk with the Lord? For us to be honest to them, to God and ourselves and say, this is how it is. We have to be willing to submit to authority to those who are more mature and who are involved in our lives perhaps as they try to encourage us and pray for us and for us to be able to share our burdens and our struggles with them. The question before us is, excuse me, the person who hates correction doesn't have to scorn it. They just have to put themselves in a place where they never even hear it. So the question for us is, are you and I in the type of relationships? Do we have the type of relationships in our lives to gain and to give godly correction? Are we in the place where people know where we're at, where we know where they're at, and where we can encourage each other in our walks with the Lord? The text compels us to face the reality that even if we are Christians, we need correction. Denying the obvious is like denying the white elephant that's standing right there in the room. It's stupid. Sanctification happens in community. Notice how the premise of the text involves several people. To, in order to, to gain correction, well, you need to have someone give it to you. And again and again, there's probably about five verses in Proverbs we could have looked at in connection with this verse. There's always someone else. There's always the giver. There's always the receiver. It happens in community. And as we talk more about this kind of relationship that you need to have, um, you need to have, um, there needs to be a relationship that has transparency. Are you li- do you have relationships in your life wherein um, people see who you really are? They PC past the facade, the face, when you are genuinely sharing your burdens and your struggles. It's great to go to the church potluck. Go. But even more important than that is do you go to the church potluck and do you establish and maintain relationships wherein you support each other in your struggles, in your joys, in your failures, in your successes. Where you lift each other up and pray for each other. Where you can honestly tell someone, I keep doing this, I know it is abhorrent in the eyes of God, I need your help. Do you have relationships where there are transparency and when there, where there is accountability, where you can say, I need your help. Feel free to ask me how I'm doing with the Lord because I need that person looking over my shoulder. Are you in those kind of relationships? You know, there was a time in my life when I thought that um, it could be just me, Jesus, and the Bible. You know, that if I had the Word and if I read it every day and if I prayed, then I could grow in my faith and I would be fine. And, you know, maybe if I needed that extra shot in the arm, I'd turn on the TV and get one of those TV preachers. And, um, and then I'd be really all set. But the fact of the matter remains that over 100 times in the New Testament alone, the word one another arrives. Love one another. Encourage one another. Submit to one another. Correct one another. Again and again, we have this idea that God wants us to be in one anothering relationships. We, have to, we are a community of faith. You know, even if you were one of those people that you, you come in here on a Sunday morning and you hear um, the sermon and you participate in the worship and, 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 and you're, um, you shake some hands, if, if, if that's where it all is for you, 
If, if, if you're there and you do that, but then you walk out and you never get involved in the relationships wherein you can correct, encourage, and discipline each other, then you're missing out on taking advantage of God's full um, resources for you to grow in your faith. You've got more weapons in your arsenal that you're not using. And you'll never advance as far as you can. You can't just come to church and expect to grow. You can't expect to be zapped. You need to have a pastor, a family member, a friend, a confidant to go through life together. Proverbs 9.8 says, Do not rebuke a mocker or he will hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. The wise person loves you because they recognize that they still need help that they have not arrived and they see the godly correction as an instrument whereby they may become more sanctified and like Christ. And so the question really is, do we want to be wise? Do we want to be that person that loves discipline and loves knowledge? Are we willing to make ourselves vulnerable in order to be more of what Christ has for us? You know, I think many of us have seen this biblical command probably used poorly. We have seen a person we know who has come under the the, the discipline of the church, perhaps, and and they've been been treated pretty harshly, perhaps with unfair motives and unfair attitude and a heavy hand, seemingly without the desire to restore them to faith and to have them be more like Christ, but more out of of just drive them down in the dirt. We've seen someone, perhaps we've been the receiver, who um, instead of having a friend come to us and, well, they have come to us and told us, hey, you're doing this, I don't, I don't know that God would want that. And they've tried to give us some correction, but the way they've done it has only allowed us to see the arrogance and the pride in their eyes rather than the love in their heart. However, a biblical command handled poorly discredits only the practitioner not the practice. And as God encourages us here to seek correction and discipline, it is worth meditating on what that would or would not look like. And we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone. I think there's a few pitfalls we need to avoid. Um, You ever notice how there are some people that in the face of correction, they do everything, everything they can to avoid contrition? I've done it, so I'll be the first to confess. You know, someone comes to you, perhaps it's a parent, and they come to you and they say, you know, um, this doesn't really seem right. You know, it says this here in the Word, and, and you're not doing that, or you're not really obeying God, and, and your life doesn't seem to be measuring up to His standard, and what were you thinking when you did this? You know, um, this is not what God would want you to do. And, and you receive or you give the, yeah, I know it's wrong, but. And but is kind of like the pivot. And then there's a 19-chapter discourse on why you did what you did. And in the end, one is left wondering whether you really felt sorry, whether you really felt godly remorse over what you did, because you spent more time talking about why it made sense and why you did it, rather than simply standing and saying, I was wrong. Or perhaps, you know, you, you know you're a child and you, you, you bring something to your parent and you say, hey, this doesn't seem, you know, you did this and, you know, the, maybe the word, the word says not to exasperate your children, but I feel pretty exasperated. Um, or, or you bring something to a friend, an employee, or a coworker, or someone in your small group and you say, hey, I don't, 
I don't know about this. And they give you the, I'm sorry you're upset, but, bang, discourse. And at the end, you're left wondering, are they really sorry? Are they really contrite? Is there really any guilt there? Or have they simply justified their behavior? How rare is it today to meet someone who will look you dead in the eye and say, I have no excuse. I know I am a sinner. God deserves my best. I fail to give it. I'm sorry. You know, I think in the church, we, we, we are prone, like everyone else, to buy into the fallacy that the world teaches us that our self-worth is based on our performance. And, and, and we take that into matters of faith so that we, I think, are afraid to admit our weaknesses and to receive correction humbly because we're afraid somehow it makes us less valuable. We're afraid that somehow if someone comes to us and tells us, hey, what about this? You know, um, let me give you some encouragement. I, I, I heard you say this or I saw you do this and I don't think that's God's will. We suddenly think that, that we can't show contrition because it implies that we're worse than they are. We must be reminded by the word that says that we have value because you are made in the image of God. That we have value because you are son and daughter of the Lord Most High and that that is something that no action, activity, or failure can remove from you. There are, there are many people, I think we err in the same way, in giving correction. When correction is given, when encouragement or discipline is given, it must not be done with an attitude of air or arrogance. In all ways it should be done humbly, prayerfully, softly, with the desire to restore rather than desire to beat down. You, know, you have to remember that as you're talking to that person that right now you may be convicting them about a sin, but there's probably one in your life that you don't know about that they could be convicting you about. And, that they're the, only, and the only thing that separates us is the specifics. That we're all sinners in need of grace. Some of us are further along on that, that track than others, but we're all still on the track as long as we're here. None of us are home yet. C.S. Lewis writes, Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but have it out. Hand over the whole natural self. All the desires which you think are innocent as well as the ones that you think are wicked. The whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you my own self. My own shall become yours. It's so easy to live our lives trying to give God those half measures and to think that maybe it's just going to happen and we're going to be more like Him. But Scripture and experience teach us that in fact it is quite the opposite. God wants more of you. The process of sanctification cannot be taken lightly or we will but weakly advance in our faith. It is only by recognizing the hill ahead, the forces which seek to cause us to stumble, to falter and to fail, that we can devise a plan to succeed. We are stupid to avoid correction, for both Scripture and experience tell us that it is needed and worthwhile in conforming more to the image of Christ. 
The church should be a place where correction happens in a spirit of love and where as a community we become more like Christ together. As you leave here this morning, is there a person in your life that is helping you on that track? Do you have a plan for spiritual growth? Have you recognized that need for discipline and are you ready to start acting accordingly and putting together a plan, getting a spiritual trainer and encourager and running the race more fervently together? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, that you do not leave us alone and without hope in this world. God, we thank you that um, that this process of sanctification is not entirely our work, that you come into us, that you move in us by your Spirit, that you do change and transform us. We praise you, God, for the opportunities that you have to become more like you. And God, we lift ourselves up before you this morning, recognizing, God, that we need, we need more of you in our lives. Pray, Father, that you would help us to be bold enough to be vulnerable where it is safe to do so. Pray, God, that you would help us to be disciplined enough to seek you with all we have and to give you our best, taking advantage of every opportunity, God, to put to death ourselves, to take hold of more of you, that we may say with you, Jesus, not my will, but your will be done. Pray, God, that you um, give us safe travel as we go home, Lord, and that we would come back here next week, next Sunday even, reflecting your image more completely and perfectly to this hurt and broken world. Amen. When we stand together...